For decades, the labor market has rewarded the college educated with high salaries and lucrative benefits packages. In part, this was a reflection of skills bias, with businesses and industries demanding higher levels of skill for a rapidly evolving economy. But other kinds of bias were also at work. First, employers use college degrees as a proxy for soft skills, things like communication, perseverance, and teamwork that can be difficult to measure via a resume or an interview. The second kind of bias, however, relates more to the kinds of work that are seen as having social prestige, which are mainly in the domain of so-called knowledge economy work. These jobs, which require higher level cognitive skills, are characterized by the ability to absorb and analyze large amounts of information and have come to define intelligence to the exclusion of other, more skills-based work. Are you agile with your hands? Do you think primarily in pictures, shapes, and spatial relationships rather than words? Do you have a high level of compassion for other people? Are you a carer? All of these can be seen as their own kind of intelligence different from that measured through IQ tests. According to today's guest, we are increasingly in the position of overproducing the first kind of worker, the one tuned to the demands of the knowledge economy and underproducing skilled craft workers and carers, nurses, teachers, therapists, and social workers. To a degree, this is backed up by labor market data that suggests employers are struggling to find people with the soft and interpersonal skills that provide care for those in need and help customers and clients navigate technological environments. What we need then is a rebalancing of education and training priorities away from abstract thinking and oriented more toward those who are able to work in the world. David Goodhart is the author of Head, Hand, and Heart, Why Intelligence is Over-Rewarded, Manual Workers Matter, and Caregivers Deserve More Respect. We discuss the markers of a successful life, the importance of careers that aren't just words or numbers, the rise of the caring professions, and the role of different kinds of education in promoting and advancing pathways to success. David Goodhart, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks very much for inviting me. We usually ask uh, our authors to talk to us a little bit about their backgrounds and how they got to where they are um, in their in their professional lives. And I'd like you to start that way too and just uh, tell us about your journey. You've got a very interesting and varied background and I, I think the uh, listeners will be fascinated to hear about it. Yeah, no, uh, happily. I, uh, I'm thinking of myself as a journalist by by professional background, perhaps even by temperament. I come from, I, I'm British, I have lived in Britain all my life, although I'm, I'm actually half American, I got two American grandfathers. Um, but I come from a very um, privileged family, I, I went to a public school, my father was a Conservative Member of Parliament, so perhaps rather naturally I became a Trotskyist when I was at university, as one does. Um, I then spent probably most of my adult life um, I mean, I, I kind of moved rel relatively quickly to the sort of orthodox centre-left. Um, I, 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 I was at York University. I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. I was at York University. I went to uh, work on the local newspaper after university. I then joined the Financial Times. Had a wonderful career at Financial Times for about 12 years, including covering German unification. Uh, very fortuitously, I seemed to sort of, by accident, sort of follow the big story wherever it went. And I ended up in Germany in 1988. Nobody else wanted to go and be the number two in Bonn. It was so unfashionable. Bonn was regarded as the, as the most dull place, <laughs> the, the most dull posting in the world. Um, um, I then, after, after that, I left the FT and set up my own magazine, a magazine called Prospect, but based partly on your own American... Uh, essay writing tradition, which we have rather less of, even though a lot of your essays are written by Brits. Um, we have we have great newspapers and great weeklies, but we don't have the equivalent of the Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker and the New York Review Review of Books. Well, we have the London Review of Books, but and I, and I wanted to set up a kind of British version of the Atlantic. Um, um, which I, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't really say it has quite reached those heights, but it still exists. I edited it for 15 years. In the course of that, of doing that, my, I mean, I, most of my adult life, I was, I belonged to the sort of orthodox centre left, really. When we launched Prospect in 95, it was seen as 
kind of vaguely part of the sort of new Labour Blair firmament. We weren't we weren't that political with a capital P, but um, we probably were quite sympathetic to that uh, broad turn of events politically. Um, but I then became sort of associated with a slightly more sceptical perspective on, on contemporary liberalism, particularly in 2004, I wrote an essay in my own magazine called Too Diverse? Question mark, which explored the tension between uh, diversity and solidarity. I mean, the sort of two dominant principles of the modern left, you might say, which are kind of both logically and sort of sociologically kind of in tension with each other. Um, if one assumes that if one accepts the common sense psychological uh, assumption that people tend to be readier to trust and share with people they have something in common with um, or feel feel um, feel familiar with um, and it was reprint the whole essay 6,000 words but it was reprinted in the Guardian and that sort of got me into the whole uh, I'd never really thought very much about race and immigration and multiculturalism and things like that prior to that um, but it got me interested in that and I ended up writing a book called The British Dream in 2013 and in the meantime I think I had through I'd I sort of shed some of my centre-left prejudices particularly I think the notion that um that that, that small c conservative values are perfectly decent <laughs> um and that actually you know wanting a relatively stable familiar world is not a crime uh, which sort of stra certain strands of modern liberalism do tend to um, regard it as. So um, I think, I mean, I would now, I would still call myself a social democrat. Uh, I, 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 I guess I politically occupy some somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. I'm, I'm rather attracted to Daniel Bell was asked for his political credo. I think it was back in the 1980s and the 1990s. And he said, I'm a social democrat in economics, <clears throat> I'm a liberal in politics, and I'm somewhat conservative in social and cultural matters. And I think that's rather, a, rather an attractive place to be. And I think a lot of modern populism is a sort of bastard expression of the lack of that strand of ma uh, in mainstream politics. If that combination had been available to voters, both in Europe and in America, I think um, um, we might have avoided some of the um, some of the sort of political disruption and alienation that we've seen in recent times. So, uh, first of all, that's fascinating journey. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about your um, you know your experience in Bonn, and um, and even the instinct or uh, happenstance that led you there. Um, you know, is so important. I, I think that's an important thing to focus on for just a second because. We have this illusion, I think, in terms of career development that uh, we start out with a very specific end in mind. And life is just not like that. Um, and we often find incredible opportunity by going places uh, that are were unexpected to us and not of great interest to others, actually. Um, uh, because then, of course, you have a chance to fill a gap uh, if nobody else is thinking about it and you get to think about it. Then you've got something um, you know that you're contributing that no one else um, wants, and then it becomes important. You know, uh, <laughs> reunification yeah. of Germany becomes extremely important. So that's very. Um, just wanted to highlight that in, in kind of listening to your story. Hmm. Um, well, particularly the luck I, aspect of it. I mean, I, I the, the you know, I mean, I, I just really was lucky of being hmm. in the right place at the right time, and, and one of the. Um, I mean, we'll perhaps come on to this, but in one of the, my, my previous book, uh, The Road to Somewhere, I talked about the value divide that led to the political alienation that led to Brexit, Trump, and so on. Uh, I mean, and, and I talk about the, actually borrowing from the American sociologist, Talker Parsons, who talks about this spectrum of identity between achieved identities and ascribed identities. And I think one, one of the main gulfs in our society is between the highly educated and mobile who, who, who tend to have a view of themselves as, as a product of their own achievements. And, and, and they are to some extent, but I think that can easily sort of tip over into a kind of liberal hubristic view of the world. And, and we constantly need to be reminded of how frigging lucky we are. Right. Um, you know, we both in the sort of what, what, what we, whatever talents we might inherit. I mean, the, you know, some of that is genetic, some of it is, is your upbringing, but you know, you don't choose your parents um, for either of those things. Um, and then, and then just you know, just being lucky or not being lucky. You know, mm -hmm. you know I, mean, I was very lucky being in the right place at the right time, 
you know, I followed the big story. My first job on the FT was a, as a labor reporter covering the great, great sort of industrial eruptions of the early 1980s in Britain against the Margaret Thatcher government. Uh, then I moved over to the city side when there were the huge big takeovers. It was just after Big Bang. The American banks were coming in and revolutionizing the financial system in London. Um, and then I ended up covering German unification. You know, and, that, that, and that sort of, in a way, that turned my... I mean, I, I was a not particularly ambitious person, but I think it was the experience of right. covering a world historic event, you know, being surrounded by all of these, you know, big shots from the New York Times would sort of suddenly turn up and, and one want to, you know, want to pick your brain about Germany. And it sort of, yeah. Sort of, I mean, it's just, it's just a really interesting combination of, as you say, luck, interest, opportunity, you know, mm -hmm. where you just sort of, you're, you know, as Woody Allen, who said 90% of life is just showing up. Um, and, uh, and I think that's really underappreciated um, in a in a world in which we are so, I think, in your term, sort of so head focused, that we think we can map all of this out ahead of time. Um, I, I don't think, you know, like I said, I don't think life works that way. Um, mm. So that fascinating, fascinating. And it and it does go right into um, your book, uh, which, um, and let's just start there. Why this book and why now? Yeah, I mean, I just touched very briefly on my previous book about, about value divides, and those value divides are partly to do with educational stratification. And this book is sort of in a way part two. So The, the Road to Somewhere was part one. This book, Head, Hand, Heart, is really part two of an inquiry, an attempt to understand the roots of political alienation and, and, and the sort of mass discontent that seems to grip us, our other, you know, our, on, the, on the face of it, rather successful societies that, um, that, that seem to have um, gone the wrong way for, for quite a few of our fellow citizens. And, and I, I guess I'm really trying to understand why that is. And it seems to me that one of the answers to it, and I, as I said, I touched on it a little bit in my previous book, but I, I've focused much more directly on it in this book, is that we have um, allocated, you know, a, a kind of uh, to too much prestige and, and reward to just one cluster of human aptitudes. And, uh, and only a certain proportion of the population will ever be, you know, in, in the top quartile, as it were, of that set of aptitudes. Um, important though they are, I mean, I, mean I, I don't want to at all give the impression that this is an anti-intellectual book or, I mean, the human species needs high intelligence now, possibly more than ever before. We've dug various holes for ourselves and you know, we need very clever teams of people to work out a COVID vaccine and uh, work out how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and so on and so forth. I mean, obviously, that is as necessary as ever. Um, but we've met, you know, with a huge expansion i would i would say over expansion of higher education in um in the last few decades we've created we've sucked into academic pursuits uh you know uh, pe people who are often no more able in, in, in any well, by any definition really no more able than the people who don't go down that path but it's as, it's as if there's a sort of been a piggybacking we know we need we need the production of new knowledge. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's what's going to save us. <laughs> so it's what keeps the show on the road in some ways. But it's only a relatively small number of people who actually do that. And we've created a, a sort of bloated cognitive class of people of, as I say, of no, no greater ability in many cases than the people who don't go through this, through, uh, through this path. And, and it's more than that. It's a cultural psychological thing, too. We've come to define a successful life far more narrowly, I think, in recent years. You know, it is doing well at school, going to more or less good university and having a more or less successful professional, usually cognitive career. Um, and I think they, and, and what's more, there is one ladder up into this zone of safety and success. I mean, this is a, a point made very well, um, you know, almost, what, 50 years ago by, uh, by Daniel Bell, again, um, in The Coming of Post-Industrial Society. You know, he sort of talks about how there, there used to be lots of little ladders up. There used to be promotion from below um, in, in large organisations. That, that has substantially disappeared. Yeah, so we have, um, we have this sort of single ladder up where, where there used to be lots of ladders. Uh, we have, a, I think, a very narrow definition. And that has... I think that's created a, and, and in the process, 
we've we've kind of necessarily because there's an element of zero sum game about this we've necessarily drawn away prestige and recognition from other kinds of human skills from this cluster of skills related to manual technical craft hand related occupations and indeed um, heart caring nurturing you know emotional intelligence related functions have uh, have diminished in importance and reward uh, in in recent decades you know I mean, the, the, the figures are all out there I mean I have a whole chapter in my book I mean it's very you know it's one of the biggest cliches of, of modern um, economics you know the, the, the higher returns to um, to qualification and, and education um, but um, I mean I think I mean that the I mean when, when I started writing this book I mean it's called head hand heart um, the struggle for dignity and status in the 21st century actually it has a slightly different subtitle in the US edition. I mean, I sort of thought of it as a as as slightly idealistic. I mean, almost a bit New Agey um, head hand heart. Um, but actually, the more I kind of I, I mean, it, and this is a, it's a sort of journalistic polemic. I mean, I'm not claiming this is a great work of scholarship. So I was kind of researching it as I went along, and I just I discovered that sort of. It, this is going to have to happen anyway. I mean, without wanting to sound too sort of Marxist determinist about it, um, because we've reached peak head effectively. We've now, um, it turns out the knowledge economy doesn't actually need that many knowledge workers. I mean, we're still in the foothills of artificial intelligence, but we're already seeing signs of this, um, uh, of, of the economy no longer requiring the same level of, of cogn cognitively trained workers. You can see it both in the UK and the US, you can see it in the decline of the, um, the graduate income premium. Uh, you can see it in the fact that, well, certainly in the UK, I think it's similar in the US, about a third of graduates are in non-graduate employment, uh, you know, even five to 10 years after graduating. And that's with a pretty elastic definition, pretty generous definition of what a graduate job is. Um, so I think there will have to be um and and meanwhile we have these you know huge skill shortages in skilled trades in the so-called missing middle the, the, the sort of technical um technician type functions you know the, the, the people that keep the show on the road in many ways you know the, the non-academic non-academically trained engineers and technicians who do uh, you know? Who do vital maintenance? The maintenance guys of our society, as it were. We've got big shortages there, and we have huge recruitment crises, at least in in Britain and Europe, uh, and I think to some extent in the US, in in nursing and, and care more generally. Um, and so we will be we'll be kind of forced to to to, to adjust our 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 reward system so that the the notion of merit. Um, and, and the sort of cognitive meritocracy. I mean, my my, I mean, there's been a there's been a lot of books recently that have been having a go at the concept of meritocracy, and and my book is partly in that. I mean, Michael Sandel wrote his Tyranny of Merit, Daniel Markovitz's book on um, the meritocracy trap, and all of that. And I and I kind of go along with some of that, but I'm, my emphasis is more on the on the prefix cognitive in the phrase cognitive meritocracy. That the problem is not so much I mean, you know, commonsensically, we will always need, you know, uh, we will need meritocratic selection uh, for jobs, for, for particularly for top jobs. You know, you don't want to be operated on by someone who's failed their surgery exams. Um, but um, the, um, the, the, the meritocracy has focused too much, as I say, on, 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 on one kind of attitude, one kind of skill set, you know, the, the cognitive analytical kind of exam writing ability, which, you know, there, there was a period when we did need many more of those people um, to, 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 to man the, you so, know, the, yeah, so let's, pause, let's just pause there. Uh, um, you know, we focus on IQ as being, uh, that that's the measure of intelligence. We don't really, I don't think, have other measurements of other kinds of intelligence. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, what are the other kinds of intelligence and then how do we how do we go about measuring them? Yeah, well, this is uh, a very pertinent question. I mean, the, the whole concept of IQ is itself, as you know, quite controversial. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I read quite a lot of the intelligence research. And I mean, it does seem to be that there is there is something 
um, that one might call kind of raw intelligence, IQ type intelligence, or pattern recognition intelligence, which, which kind of on its own doesn't necessarily make a successful, capable person. I mean, given the kind of demands of, of sort of communication abilities, social intelligence, and so on, um, and 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 even people with high levels of IQ type intelligence um, are often um, don't. You know, they're, they're very good at rationalizing. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily very effective people, um, but still, I mean, it, 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 it counts for something, it's real, and it is pretty embedded in our societies, even though people take IQ tests less. I mean, you know, SATs tests are sort of partly, have an IQ element to them. We used to have something called the 11 plus in the UK, which decided what kind of school you went to at the age of 11. Um, I mean, aptitude tests that employers routinely used to, for, 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 for um, promoting people and, and indeed employing them in the first place or often have IQ elements. So, I mean, there is, there are, there, you know, that will remain, I think, an important sort of aspect of, of sort of selection and, and the distribution of reward in a way. But there are other, uh, you know, the, the, the other forms, and one of the reasons why the sort of cognitive meritocracy has swept all before it in recent times is because it seems to be, fair and easy to measure and and it kind of is i mean it's, it's sort of easier to you know everybody reads the same book you know i don't know about biology or history or whatever and then answers some exam questions and that and it's you know and, and it's relatively easy then to kind of rank people by their success in uh, or not in answering those questions it's much it's hard, so much harder yeah. to then say okay uh how do we measure your aptitude and your ability um, in skills trades? How would we begin to think about, you know, identifying people who really have those gifts? Because actually, they're, I would say they're almost as rarely distributed in a sense um, as IQ is. Or how do we look at somebody and say, that's a first class nurturer that we yeah. need uh, yeah. and, and we need to build that up? Yeah, well... I think that's a that's a very good question, and it sort of again it goes to the I mean it goes to the heart of what I think distinguishes my critique of meritocracy from, say, Sandel or Markovitz, because I'm actually saying, um, you know, let let's not uh, and, and in any case the reality is we are never going to abandon the concept of of meritocracy, but let's shift it, uh, let let's indeed. I mean, paradoxically, let's have more of it in some of these other areas, like in care, because. Uh, you know, as as things currently stand, care is something that is very difficult to measure. It's very difficult to judge the quality of a carer, or it's a kind of it's a much more intuitive thing. So, to, oh, you know, that person is clearly a good carer. You need to kind of observe them over time. Um, and I think we need to get better at this. And in some ways, we need kind of more meritocracy in in the in the areas of sort of craft and care, where. Where it's where where it has been more elusive and, and, and hard to measure, we must you know we, we need to work harder. And I mean let, I mean you know why is it you know if you ask an economist why is it that people in care homes are paid so little, they will say because anybody can do the job. But that's an example of a kind of cognitive creep. I mean they're, they're, what they're really saying is you don't need cognitive qualifications to do a job in a, a basic job in a care home. Yeah, uh, but it, that, happen, it happens to be completely untrue. Exactly. <laughs> as well yeah. not I, anybody can do that work in exactly. fact it's very difficult exactly. work to do well exactly I and mean, that's my point that you know you spend five or ten minutes in a care home or a hospital even and you will and you can see some people are good carers like in any walk of life some people are good carers some people are okay carers and some people are crap carers and we you know and we tend to you know but, but the, and, and presumably promotion in a, in a hospital is part to some extent Based on the, on on observing somebody's uh, ability over time, but uh, but I think it's it's much harder to do, and there's probably much less differentiation actually in pay um, uh, and and reward more generally um, in in care because you know how you know somebody working on a geriatric ward in a hospital who's you know spent the afternoon um, you know you know bathing people or. Uh, or just making people's lives a little bit less miserable for 
for, for several hours. How do you measure that? I mean, how, you know, it's very, very hard to measure it, but, uh, but uh, we should try. I mean, um, uh, I I mean think... I'll, I'll give you another example. Just ask you to react to this. I mean, because I, I also work on criminal justice reform. One of my passions actually about it is prison education. Um, right now, to, if you're, if you're, if you have the opportunity to get any education, if you're in prison, it's mm. almost always in skilled trades. That's mm. where everybody gets pushed as if that were a, if, as if it were a true that people in prison somehow had a disproportionate concentration of gifting for skilled trades, which is certainly not true. Um, you know, it's people are there people like all other people, and some of them can do that kind of work and many people can't. Um, but if you have opportunity for education, then we, we push people towards skilled trades as if that's, that's all they were good for, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a kind of uh, prejudice, uh, there's a kind of prejudice Im uh, embedded in that, yeah. um, that is well, very disruptive. Yeah, well, f funny you should say that, because I mean, I, I've got a little bit in my book where I talk about the um, the disappearance of uh, of you know, um, carpentry and metalworking. I think you call it shop class in America, don't you? The the, the the disappearance of shop class from the school curriculum, but it's all now being taught in prison instead. Um, which um, it would be actually better if they taught it less in prison or or had a broader range of things that they taught because there'll be lots of very very academically able people probably in prison who whose you know whose life course but perhaps partly because they were so clever they've been frustrated by their by their circumstances and have ended up in um in crime and there'll be people with with great um nurturing potential um but those things are ignored as as, as you're saying and with yeah. this over constitution yeah but but let's well, get it back into schools and have less and, of it is it betrays yeah Right. No, I, I think that's right. And I think it betrays the bias, right? It be, you know, yeah. if you're not in prison, then your pathway is college. I want to just move on to some of these other questions we've got. Um, so uh, you, you alluded to this earlier, which is that we've got kind of an overabundance of head workers uh, in the knowledge economy that we can't actually absorb uh, the, yeah. the number of people. The economy can't absorb the number of people who are getting credentialed for these for these uh, these kinds of jobs, um, mm. uh, so what's going to what's going to happen then? What do you think um, the end result of that is? Because I, I agree with you. I think the path that path is narrowing over mm. time, um, mm. and and yet we're putting more and more people into that funnel. Yeah, no, and and we're creating a crisis of expectations too, because people have been told, you know, that if you, you know if you do well at school and you go to college. You know, you are you're sort of guaranteed entry into this zone of safety and success called the professional class, and and more and more graduates are finding that that's not the case, or that they end up doing, um, you know, pretty routine um, kind of administrative type jobs for I don't know twenty five thirty thousand dollars a year, that they're jobs that their non non graduate non college graduate peers could easily have done, or indeed their non college graduate parents might have done. Um, so there, there's a sort of crisis of expectations. And I think that's having, I think it's had a political impact already. I mean, I think things like the sort of Bernie's, these are eruptions of political emotion, I think partly driven by this, this category of disappointed graduate. Uh, the Bernie Sanders movement, um, you could see in America, um, we've had sort of the equivalent Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, most of the people who support these um, leftist movements t t tend to be um, middle class, low middle class graduates. Um, you might even say some of the Black Lives Matter stuff. I mean, you know, that, that's you know, obviously a whole whole different subject. But you know, the frustration of young black graduates who, who who come out of college and find they're not getting decent employment. You know, they have the explanation: oh, well, it's racism, uh, and, and maybe it is in some circumstances. But I think it's much more to do with the overproduction of kind of the middling and lower cognitive skills. And I think what is going to happen is that, um, what I hope happens is that, you know, that the, the people who would have done those kinds of jobs are increasingly going to, as it were, follow the market signals, which are telling them that actually 
um, you know, a, a, a skilled trades job or a, or a technical job of some kind, or indeed a caring job, some kind of face-to-face -face, um, caring job in education or, or health is going to be um, is going to be where they're heading, and they're going to take with them um, a desire to make those jobs, um, you know, as well paid as 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 as, as is reasonable. And with as high, you know, with, with a higher level of recognition than they, that they than they currently have, and I do think this, you know, this could be one of the things. You know, the pandemic has been a very messy experience, I think, for um, both in the US and in much of Europe. But I, but I, and I wrote this book um, before the pandemic. I wrote it in, in 2019, and I, um, I mean, I, I managed to um, a, a proof stage, managed to weave in lots of references to the pandemic, and, and added a. A preface about the pandemic but um and i but i do think that um the way in which we became more aware i mean just to put it at its lowest we became very much more aware of our interdependence of our dependence on people doing very basic jobs you know driving vans you know filling the shelves in supermarkets their their kind of their invisibility uh, at least at least temporarily disappeared and we became thankful for the job they were doing as well as of course the the carers and the doctors uh and i think can hope that that some of that will linger on and that so some of the um some of the some of the the recognition that i think it, that, that makes a makes a job a decent job the feeling that you're recognized by your fellow citizens as doing something useful it may not be the best paid job in the world may not be the most interesting uh but you know perhaps you know you can get your sense of of meaning and status, I mean, in, in some respects from other areas of your life, not every, I mean, I think this again is a sort of, it's a, it's a bit of an illusion of the educated classes that, you know, all jobs have to be a form of self-expression. Well, actually about half the population, half the working population in the US and the UK think of their job as just a, a means of earning a living, I mean, whether they would like it to be so, more. So, yeah. so let me ask you about that though. I mean, uh, and this is it sort of gets into sort of one of the some of the challenges that I have with the argument that you've laid out in the book, which is um, we talk about people not deriving meaning all their meaning from work, and I, you know, I'm fully on board with that notion that we overemphasize uh, work as a source of meaning. Um, I would say that there's a, uh, and I and I think there could be a bunch of explanations for this, but there's this denigration. There can also be a denigration of work as providing meaning, um, and that um, that that turns into uh, in in education and training that that turns into a conversation about how uh, any education and training is only valuable to the extent that we can connect it to a market outcome. Uh, you know, uh, it's all about, you know, this is all about just providing for yourself and, and your family and that work. Um, uh, it's, it's actually wrong to think about work as being a source of meaning or, or that somehow that's a waste of time and effort. Um, what do you, what do you think of that? No, I, well, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, there were huge debates about education in the 19th century. There were often not, nothing at all to do with, um, the economy, you know, at a time when economies were, you know, just a very small fraction of the size they are now, and people's, you know, incomes were tiny compared to now. But and yet, the, you know, the, the the focus of the education debate was much more on, you know, creating, you know, the creating the civilized individual, um, the good citizen. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think too much of our education debate has become very economistic. Um, and and I think we should. Um, I mean, I'm very much in favour of. Um, I mean, we had an education secretary here called Michael Gove, who is associated with trying to sort of re-inject sort of rigour into. Um, you know, very much. It's kind of influenced by E.D. Hirsch and 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 um, and those kinds of thinkers trying to. Um, um, challenge the sort of um, progressive child-centered education of, of recent decades. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with him. I mean, I think um, partly because people, you know, kids at the bottom of the pile tend to do much better in schools that are, that are highly disciplined 
and very academically rigorous and and demand a lot of them you know without the what's the famous bush quote the the um, bigotry of low expectations and yeah, all that the soft bigotry of low expectations yeah. no when I, I, when I think we can afford to have a pretty high academic floor and expect pretty well everybody to you know to get the basics in in english and maths and so on um, but i think we should also apply the same rigor to the so-called sort of softer discipline, the arts and music, and you know, because we are going to have a lot more time on our hands, and and you know, creating people who are able to, you know, to to cultivate themselves in all sorts of different ways, I think is is very important. And the and the two things, but the two things shouldn't be seen as sort of intention, I don't think, or as almost as opposites. I think you know, it's a matter of you know, teaching art. I mean, I. I, I I know someone who set up a, a very traditional, very, very successful, traditional, very disciplined school in North London, overwhelmingly ethnic minority kids. And, you know, they're already getting extraordinarily good exam results. But it also has the most brilliant art department um, and a very strong music department because these these disciplines are sort of taught rigorously. They're not soft options. They're, they're taught as rigorously as maths or, or English is taught. Um, and obviously not, not everybody, uh, you know, can learn to play the piano well, but, um, um, but actually probably most people can, you know, if, if, they're, if they're well taught enough. Well, and even if they can't, um, you know, I, I was hopeless in art class, right? As well, as I did have to take uh, a year of shop class when I was uh, in high school and it was torture for me. Um, but there are certain things that you learn even when you're bad at something, yeah. um, you know, and uh, as long as we're in a, you know, as long as we focus on performance and outcome, you know, like you're, you're only worthy of this kind of education if you're excellent at it. I think that that's a huge problem. Uh, well, learning the humility of being bad at something is probably quite good for you, your character. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Uh, it, it helps you not to look down on people who are uh, yes. skilled differently um, than, than you are um, or, you know, you know, hoist yourself up as because yeah. you're a, a book person. Although I also uh, we, we shouldn't be naive about this either, though. I mean, I think that the whole kind of the, the whole idea of kind of equality of esteem, I think, is always going to be a bit, a bit of a myth. I think we have to recognize that uh, rather. <laughs> Or rather, you can have equality of esteem at the kind of level of the average person. You know, why should someone who's perhaps a tiny bit more uh, cognitively able than someone who's very technically manually able, why should they regard themselves in any way superior? But if you kind of draw the camera back and look at society as a whole, I think we will always esteem, you know, high intelligence, you know, knowledge creating intelligence. I mean, the kind of Einsteins and, and not just the Einstein, I mean, just very, very clever people, you know, who go to the Ivy League universities or the Oxford and Cambridges and 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 do stuff. Will I think that you know that will always be specially esteemed. Um, but uh, but we don't have to. Uh, uh, but but I think we can apply that that idea of a, a more equality of esteem for for the vast bulk of us. So um, this gets into the um, uh, you know sort of. Obviously, we we agree that uh, that we've privileged a certain kind of intelligence um, in society. You know, the sort of abstract, head focused, over other types of intelligence, whether it's manual, mm. you know, sort of hand um, or interpersonal um, intelligence. So we agree on that. I, I where I struggled with the book um, was that I think that it's it could. It, uh, there's always a danger in these things being misinterpreted, right? Yeah. And uh, and it's possible be possible for somebody to pick up your book and say, well, it says it right here. We need we need to really focus on you know sort of building up the skilled trades. Uh, and um, at the expense of that, and that will come at the expense of both other kinds of knowledge. Or, or other types of skill, um, and and I see this all the time in the policy world that I work in, which is, you know, uh, Republicans are especially bad about this um, in the United States, where it's all right, forget about the bachelor's degree, 
bachelor's degrees are are useless. They're worthless. We need to focus on you know sort of training people in technical skills. But that's not actually what the market is telling us in terms of what's demand and demanded in the workforce, which is this heart knowledge that you're talking about. That's mm. actually what employers are saying. We need more of that because we're automating everything else. You know, mm. we're automating the we're automating more and more of the sort of cognitive tasks. Um, we're and we've successfully automated a lot of the manual work. Uh, and what we can't automate are, you know, are, is, is the heart knowledge. So how do we develop that heart knowledge? And I would argue, I want to get your reaction to this, that uh, that undergraduate education can actually do that pretty well um, if it's yeah. if it's structured properly, if it's taught properly, that people can gain not just knowledge but certain skills uh, in an undergraduate education that lend themselves toward uh, being able to relate effectively to other people. So I'm gonna stop talking and just have you react to that. Well, yeah, I, I think there is something in that. I mean, I think one of the problems here though is that often you learn these kind of soft skills. I mean, you know, if you haven't learned them in the family um, or you've only sort of partly learned them in the family. I mean, I think college, particularly perhaps the more elite residential colleges uh, I mean, most of the Ivy League and liberal arts universities tend to be residential, don't they? Or, I mean, a lot about, I think about, about half of American students, university, college students live at home. Um, it's actually a lower proportion in the UK. We're, we're, we're international outliers, I think, in about 75, 80% of at least of school leavers who go on to university, go to residential universities. And um, and one of the arguments made is that, you know, the people, in a sense, it doesn't matter. You know, we have all this evidence that shows that, particularly if you're doing a non-vocational kind of humanities degree, you forget most of what you learned at university. Um, you know, it's it's partly a credentializing signal system, um, but it's also it doesn't matter kind of what you learn or what you've forgotten. But what, it's the experience of being there for three or four years, um, mixing with people from very different backgrounds to you perhaps, you know, learning how to, you know, almost the kind of quasi-political skills of, you know, setting up a college society of some kind and uh, learning how to organize a meeting and, um, and, these, and these kinds of interactions with your peers that you learn there. And I do think that is one of the, and it's also one of the attractive things, one of the reasons why so many kids still want to go to university in the UK, even though some of the market signals are starting to tell them that it may be, um, particularly the lower end, may be a waste of their time. It's also, of course, the fact that I mean, this becomes a sort of self-perpetuating machine because 40% of the jobs in the UK economy, it's probably similar in the US, are now graduate only. So, you know, so there's a massive sort of bias in the in the system, uh, sort of self-perpetuating bias. Yeah, in it's a in the US. I, I always attribute that to um, it. Uh, it is uh, it's a proxy. Um, the requirement for degrees as a proxy for these soft skills that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, the, the, the problem here, Brent, is that these are very sort of class-related in a way. They're very upbringing-related. You know, so you know, my children and probably your children sort of have a kind of quite a long way down the route to having them almost automatically. Um, you know, and, and these, you know, even in very basic, you know, one, one of my sons um, for, for a for a couple of years was doing sort of odd jobs and were doing a lot of work in bars and you know he's a kind of quite an upper middle class kid went to a private school and he's you know he, he knows how to be genial and and get on well with 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 a lot of people and and you know and and, and these are things that are uh, that are sort of you know inbred in the way that he's been raised um and you know, and he, his employers absolutely loved him, and they, you know, can we have more of you? So he was, he so he was creating this whole. In fact, he thought of setting up a business of sort of creating a sort of employment, um, <laughs> employment. I network. think that's brilliant. I think yeah. it should. <laughs> yeah, but it's also kind of you know, it's sort of uh, you know, it, it's a it's another form of really quite severe unfairness. You know that, you know, you you kind of inherit your demeanor almost from your class background. Um, and, and, and it just happens to be the kind of uh, cooperative soft skills that, that, are, that tend to be found at one end of the social scale more than the other. 
Right. So, uh, and I, I've written a fair amount on this and I've, I've mm -hmm. talked to a lot of people who are working with, uh, you know, who are more directly working with uh, underprivileged populations than I am about it. And the pushback is always, well, it, you're just, you're just asking uh, these, not always, uh, but predominantly minority kids from minority backgrounds, you're asking them to act white, you're asking mm -hmm. them to code switch between their, you know, their uh, culture of origin and the sort of white dominated um, business culture uh, and that's not really fair. And I, you know, when I hear that, I think, yeah, it isn't fair. Uh, life is not fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we can't, I, I always tell people, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I got from my father was the world is not going to change for you. Um, you know, you're going to have to figure out how to make your way in the world as it is mm. while you, while you try to advocate for, you know, the kind of world you'd like to see. Um, mm. so it's, it's, it's a constant mixing, but I think we, we don't do a service to people by saying, uh, that's just pure bias. Uh, that's the world operating against you. It's so unfair. Cause then it causes them to retreat, um, yeah. you know, and think they, they could never make it. Well, they can, uh, and there are ways of mitigating this, um, so that people do have, do, do have a decent shot. Now, having said all of that. I, I do think there's an opportunity in the social dialogue right now to kind of talk about systemic disadvantage and the way that these cultural factors play mm. into that systemic disadvantage. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah but, but I mean, just being nice is not in itself genuflecting to white privilege. I mean, you know, I mean, this is a, a crazy idea, really. Just be nice. And if you can't be nice, pretend to be nice you know? <laughs> you'll you'll eventually get there yeah. <laughs> if you pretend long enough you'll get there yeah faking it to making it you know isn't it sort of alcoholics anonymous say isn't it um so i was really delighted to see in your book the reference to ian mcgillchrist's work uh he is he is a real intellectual uh hero to me and i've had him to aei and Hmm. Uh, and, and he, John Cleese, uh, the actor came with him and they, you know, we had, we had a really, uh, wonderful evening together. It was, um, hmm. you know, broad broadcast in it. So I would really like to hear how, uh, McGill Chris work, his book, the master and his emissary sort of fits with yours or how you see it fitting with yours. Hmm. No, I mean, I I, um, I kind of discovered him while I was writing the book, actually, and um, and I, I've, I've met him a couple of times, and I I, uh, I share your admiration for his work. I mean, I think it was it kind of fitted in with what I was writing about, well, about the limit the limits of the sort of cognitive meritocratic worldview, and particularly in politics. I think I remember, I think I talked about the McGilchrist book in the final chapter along with um, a kind of critique of um, the, the, the dominant sort of liberal anywhere politics that the populism is a sort of is push, pushing back against, sometimes in ugly ways, I think sometimes in quite legitimate ways. And I think I, I, think I was citing, I'm hearing a speech by David Miliband, um, who should really have been um, Labour leader. He was stabbed in the back, if you remember, by his brother, Ed Miliband. Um, a few years ago and um and has now left politics but i mean he you know leading labor politician i think this was a th the third anniversary i think of the brexit vote in 2016 and he was talking in a big audience of the lse you know a great sort of heroic figure for some certain people in in british life the prince across the water kind of thing and he talked about the the, the brexit vote and he, i think i don't think he mentioned i mean he talked only about you know, Labour's failure on economic growth and its failure to redistribute more income. There was nothing about, um, uh, you know, how people feel. There was nothing about national identity. There was nothing about feelings of, of being left behind and what the roots of those might be. I mean, it was just, it seemed a very kind of, um, and it kind of made me think that so much, particularly of centre-left politics, has been sort of, clever but mechanistic you know it just hasn't it hasn't 
had a, a sufficiently sophisticated emotional um, dimension to it. And, and, and therefore, you know, it's very, I can't remember which part of the brain it is, you know, but it's very, it's very left brain. Um, it's very, um, um, it, it doesn't see the wider context of human life, I suppose. And, and you can, go, you know, you go back, and my book is full of examples of, again, particularly politicians, I suppose partly because I know them better because I come from that world, but politicians of the centre-left, like Tony Blair, who particularly since the takeover of the centre-left by essentially a, a kind of liberal graduate worldview, and the and the uh, and, and its loss of connection to you know lower income manual manual workers. Um, I mean, in, I mean, it's, it was illustrated for me so perfectly by the um, the speech he gave. Tony Blair gave a speech in in uh, in 1999, saying that 50% of school leavers should go to university. Uh, and I mean, I don't think it was even particularly remarked on at the time. wasn't considered anything special. And that, but it was sort of extraordinary that. Um, that he obviously hadn't thought, and the people around him obviously hadn't thought about what it might be like to be in the other 50%. Um, and I mean, I call it the kind of 15-50 problem. But when, you know, when 10 or 15% of the people in your class or school or, or town go into higher education and you don't, it doesn't really matter, life goes on, you go and work in the local factory or office. And, uh, but when 40 to 50% of your peers do and you don't. It's a completely different psychological ball game. And, and it's sort of um, just that, you know, that is a sort of, that's one side of the brain. I can't remember which the- It's the, the left, yeah, the left the, side of the brain. You know, the, the instrumental means ends, mechanistic, um, you know, over-rationalistic, over-economistic, you know, I mean, it's perfectly embodied too in the Remain campaign, in the, in the Brexit debate here. You know, the Remainers are basically just saying, um, you will be poorer if we leave the European Union. Um, but, you know, there's more, you know, man cannot live by bread alone. <laughs> right. We, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, you always hear people like Ben Shapiro saying things like, uh, you know, the facts don't care about your feelings. So that's coming from the right, uh, yeah. not the left, but facts don't care about your feelings. <clears throat> well, I think feelings are starting to return the favor. Feelings are one of the facts. I mean, yeah. Indeed, possibly the dominant fact of politics. I mean, right. yeah. the dominant fact of human existence, um, I think. Um, well, uh, this has been absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, the book is Head, Hand, Heart, Why Intelligence is Overrewarded, Manual Workers Matter, and Caregivers Deserve More Respect by our guest, David Goodhart. And I can't recommend uh, his, um, his work highly enough to the audience, accessible, which is important, uh, and um, extremely well-written. So David, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and uh, I'm gonna go read your other books and we will have you back on again sometime. Oh, lovely. Well, thank you very much, Brent. Really good to talk. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.